0: kind of continuing on in our uh, series on wisdom and marriage. And again, guys, I'll let you know um, next week what's going to be happening, because next week technically is our last um, (laughs) study in the series. And uh, so we will wait and see um, what this all looks like when we get there. But uh, I'll let you guys know. And then also just, you know, again, go online and see because um, we may just continue with something else. And, and, uh, but uh, I'll wait and see what, uh, what the Lord does with and through all this. But again, just guys, just another reminder, um, God is in control. Uh, again, um, March 6th, Friday night, um, we jumped on a plane and went to El Salvador We flew back March 13th, Saturday, we came back to a radically different United States than the United States we left. And it has this feeling that it's some weird, bizarre sci-fi movie that just keeps getting weirder and bizarre and right is wrong and wrong is right and the movie's just not ending. (laughs) So, you know, we'll, uh, but, but God hasn't changed. He's the same today, forever, and, and always. And that's what he has been speaking to my heart, reminding me through all of this. You know, I mean, the, the head gets tweaked a bit, but God has not changed. So again, tonight we're going to be um, in our wisdom and marriage series. James chapter three, verse 17. Um, the wisdom that is from above is first pure It's then peaceable, it is gentle, it's willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And tonight we're going to be looking at, again, God has brought us to this very unique, this is uh, the only place in the scripture where this word is used. It is without partiality, at least. One person said it was used somewhere else, but all the other Bible commentators I read said this is the only place in the scripture where this word is used. Without partiality, unwavering, not to be divided, without inconsistency, without favoritism, without uncertainty, not to doubt, never being swayed by self-interest, Worldly honor, the fear of man. The idea is that wisdom from above makes us impartial in our treatment of others. We're not to be influenced by dress, rank, station, but show the same kindness to all. And again, I find it interesting that the Lord has brought us to this place and to these verses tonight. This is where we land. Because again, without partiality is really we are not to treat people different because of the color of their skin, the car they drive, the house they live in, the bike they ride. you know We're called to treat all men, all women with kindness, without partiality. Listen, last Tuesday morning, I'm driving very early down to LAX. I'm dropping Mary off. She's going back up this last week to help my daughter out again. And so I go and I drop her off early in the morning. I get back on the freeway as I'm driving home. Um, Dr. Tony Evans um, is on, and as he's on, he's sharing a, a study that he's doing again with everything going on, kind of on racism and social injustice and things. But as he's there and as he's talking, he begins to talk about the problems that are out there in the world in which we live in. And he basically says, Listen, people, the problem is not the color of a man's skin, but the problem is the condition. Of a man's heart. And all the social change will never deal with the issues as long as man's heart is not changed. And what that is, is that is the gospel. The gospel is the only means by which the heart can be changed. And yet it's the Lord that wants to do this work. And yet, what I find very, very interesting is that, listen, racism, social injustice, these things, it's not like they've been around only for a month. Uh, only for a few years or even 200 years. Listen, you go back into the Bible, go back to Genesis chapter 4, and it, 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 it says, basically the Bible says, this stuff started back then. Genesis chapter 4, we read the story of Adam and Eve. And it said, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. So when it says Adam knew his wife, it means they had sexual relation. And she conceived, and she had a son, and she named him Cain. It says, then she conceived again and had a son and named him Abel. Then it says this, in the process of time. So in like one little verse, uh, when it says in the process of time, it means Cain and Abel are no longer babies, (laughs) but they are grown men. And in the process of time, they came before the Lord and they each offered a sacrifice to the Lord. They each offered an offering. Abel offered his offering. Cain offers his. (laughs) We don't know exactly why the Lord did what he did, uh, because the Bible really doesn't tell us. But it says, for some reason, God accepted Abel's offering and he rejected Cain's offering. Now, again, a lot of people will speculate my own. I keep things really, really simple. And it's just like today. When my heart's right and I come before the Lord, the, the Bible says he's going to accept that. When my heart's not right, he doesn't accept that. I believe that Abel's heart was in the right place. God accepted it. Cain's heart was not in the right place. Cain did not. God did not accept Cain's. And yet then we see him and God and Cain, they kind of go through this thing where Cain's all mad. He's frustrated. This isn't right. This isn't fair. This is not equality. This is not Okay. And him and God are going through this thing and, and then he leaves God's presence and he goes out and he kills his brother Abel. Again, this is not something that just have, these are things, this prejudice, this race kind of type thing of, or feeling like equality. It's been around since the beginning of time. God had his hand on the nation of Israel. And on the nation of Israel, he actually, for his people, he called them just like he has with you and me. He's called us to be separate. We are. We live in this world, but we're to be separate from them. For the Jewish people, they were called to be separate from the, the nations around them because there were some wicked and perverted things. But the Jews took it to such an extreme that they basically said, we want absolutely nothing to do with anyone who is not Jewish with anyone who is not thinking the same way that we think so much so that if they were going down the street and there was a Gentile, that was anyone who's not Jew was coming down, they would walk on the other side of the street just so they wouldn't rub up against them. Again, this is going on. These kind of things were were happening there with them. Again, if you were a good Jewish man, every day you prayed this prayer. Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a woman. Thank you that I'm not a dog. That seems a little weird for a man to be praying a prayer like that. But that's how far the Jews had taken this. Until one day there was a Jew who came on the scene whose name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus was not so much looking at the outside, the color, or the condition of where people were at externally, he was looking at the heart. Remember the story there when they went up to Samaria, and there's a woman at the well there in John chapter 4, and there at the woman of the well, Jesus walks up. Now, we, we hear, we read what he says, but we don't understand all of the background. He goes up, this woman comes out to the well, she's drawing water, and he says, hey woman, could you give me a drink? This woman was caught so off guard because Jews would not even talk to Gentiles. Listen, first and foremost, she was a Gentile, strike one. Secondly, she was a woman, that is strike two. And, And Jews did not talk to Gentiles and men did not talk to, especially a Jewish man, did not talk to a woman. And yet he asked her for a drink of water. She's looking at him like, you talking to me? You guys have nothing to do with us. What are you doing talking to me? But again, Jesus goes beyond the external and he's dealing with the issues or the matter of the heart. And that's what he's always after. That's what he's still after today. Then we see the story of the Syrophoenician woman, again, another Gentile. She comes up and she's asking Jesus, she's got a daughter, her daughter is sick, her daughter is in need of being healed, and he comes up and says, she comes up and is begging him, would you please heal my daughter? Jesus does what normally Jews would do. He totally ignores her, okay? Gentile woman, you know what, I have nothing to do. He ignores her. Then she goes after the, the disciples. She goes after them, hey, hey, we, I want my daughter, she goes... They don't talk to her, but they talk to Jesus. I get a kick out of this when you read this story. They go after Jesus. Hey, Jesus, tell her to leave us alone because we can't tell her that because that's sin for us. That's not right. But you obviously you could talk to a woman. You did it to a woman. Well, so tell her to leave us alone. And so she goes, they go after her, but she persists, persists, persists. Persist. Jesus finally stops and says, listen, you don't take the food that's for the children and give it to the dogs. In a sense, Jesus kind of calls her a dog, but she stops and says, you know what? I, I don't care. I got a child. My child needs healing and you're the one that can heal. Would you please? And then she stops and says, listen, even the dogs get to lick the crumbs from the master's table. And again, I love that depiction of God and his grace. One tiny little crumb is enough to do a miraculous miracle in my life. It's enough to heal. And when she said that to Jesus, Jesus looked at her and said, woman, great is your faith. You go, you go, your daughter has been healed. But then we see Jesus die, rise again. Fifty days later, Pentecost. Peter raises up, anointed with the Holy Spirit. He preaches a message. All these people get saved. And God is doing these incredible works through the, the, the apostles and then finally, Peter goes, you know what, I'm going to go down to the beach and I'm going to kind of hang out for a few days and just relax. He goes down to a city called Joppa at the same time in the next city over. In fact, if you go down or you go to Caesarea, you can usually walk down to Joppa. I did it the first time I went there. We just walked down there. But he's in Caesarea. And uh, he, uh, he's a Jew. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile and he's a centurion soldier. So he's a man of authority. And he's a man over a lot of other people. And yet this, this this guy living in Israel decides, we don't know how or why, but he's going to worship the God of Israel. And what I love about this is it it proves Scripture to be true. Scripture says if we search with all our heart, we will find him. No matter what background you have, if you're willing to seek God will reveal himself to him if you're searching with all your heart. And as he's there, he's, he's worshiping the God of Israel and crying out to him. God visits him. God visits this guy. And he comes to him and he says, Cornelius, your prayer has been answered. Listen, what we want you to do, what, we, what I want you to do is you go down to Joppa, send some guys over there. They're going to go down at the, at the house of a guy named of, of Simon the Tanner. There's a guy there named Simon Peter. I want you to grab this guy, bring him back. He will declare to you the way of salvation. So Cornelius, like after, you know, having a vision like that from the Lord, he sends his, two of his guys and one of his best soldiers, "Hey, you go down there and look for this guy." It's the afternoon. Peter's there in the house. He's getting hungry. He wants dinner. They don't have microwaves, so it takes a while to prepare dinner. While they're preparing dinner, he decides, I'm going to go up on the rooftop and I'm just going to spend some time with the Lord. He goes up on the rooftop and as he's sitting there spending time with the Lord, the Bible says he went into this trance. We don't know exactly what that means, but what happened was the sheet comes down from heaven. The sheet opens up. It's all of these animals that are clean and unclean. Because again, if you're a Jew, there's certain animals you can't eat, certain animals you can't eat. But on this sheet was all kinds of animals. And then a voice came to Peter, says, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter's sitting there, not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything that's not clean. And a voice came back, said, what I have called cleansed, you do not call unclean. And all of a sudden, sheet goes back up. Peter's sitting there pondering all this. She comes back down, opens up. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I have to think this time he's like, um, you know, I've never eaten anything that's unclean. What I have called clean, don't you call unclean. She goes back up. He's pondering what the heck is going on? Third time, sheet comes down, opens up, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I have to believe that Peter at this time saying, okay, time out. There is something else going on. What is it, Lord, that you're trying to tell me? And the sheet goes back up. Next thing you know, God speaks his heart, said, listen, there's some guys coming. I want you to go with them, and I don't want you to ask a single question. You go, don't doubt anything. You just go with them. Peter's like, Huh? hey, is there some guy here named Peter? Is he here? Yeah. And Peter goes down and he's sitting there. And They said, hey, Cornelius, this guy, he had this vision. We were told to come and get you. Will you please come? And Peter's thinking, oh, I'm not sure about all of this. I love it because Peter doesn't just go with him by himself because these are Gentiles, And it is not right for Peter to be with a Gentile to walk with him or even to go into his house. So he grabs six other of his buddies to come along like he's going to pull them into his sin. You know, thanks Pete for doing this. And they go and they go down there. Listen, again, you can tell Peter's got issues because what's the first thing he says when he walks into the house? It's not right for me to be here. It is not right for me to be here. But God told me I had to come. And I had to be here and I wasn't to ask, but I know it is not right for me to be here. And yet, okay, I'm going to tell you about the way of salvation. He begins to talk to them about Jesus. As he's talked to them, the Holy Spirit falls down among the people. God does this incredible work there, saving them. And Peter's all of a sudden, okay, God, I believe there's something that you're doing here that goes way beyond. who I am, way beyond all of these sayings. And again, this is the work that God is continuing to do today. And I believe he wants to do it in each and every one of our hearts and in our lives. It's not about the color of anyone's skin. It's not about the house, the car, even the bike you ride. I'm gonna come to that at the end. (laughs) The bike you ride or anything like that. It's about the work that God wants to do in and through our hearts and lives in showing kindness to the world in which we live in. So, without partiality. And we're going to look at tonight how that relates to us in marriage. And Mary's going to explain the way. I
1: don't know about (laughs) that, but I'll start. Okay, without partiality. um, I just wanted to encourage you that came out tonight or those that will just be watching to... um, Um, just encourage you that you continue on in the study of um, God's word. And just as Pat is sharing these things, it's amazing how applicable they are for here, for now, for today, for the things going on around us. God's word is alive and powerful, Mm -hmm. and it is able, it it doesn't matter that it was written 2,000 years ago, it is going to apply to what's going on today here in 2020 with all the chaos and the commotion out and I just love that. So just continue on in God's word. Don't give up. And um <clears throat> a verse that I read in the devo- a, I think the other morning in devotions is Proverbs 17:24 and it said this. Sensible people keep their eyes glued on wisdom, but a fool's eyes wander to the ends of the earth. And I just love that because I just thought it was so encouraging for us as we continue to whether we can't sing or we can or we can't gather and sit next to each other or we can't. It doesn't matter. We can continue on in God's word and we can be sensible people. I love that. Their eyes are glued on wisdom. I like that. I mean, they are fixed on godly wisdom. And it just happens to be that we're studying godly wisdom. And yet the opposite of that is true. Fools are always looking, always searching, thinking that there must be something better out there in this world, that they're missing out on, and they always come up empty and disappointed. And yet the encouragement just to continue on and to continue in God's wisdom and in his word. And as we continue and have our eyes glued on godly wisdom, just what a timely um, topic this is without partiality. And as Pat pointed out some of the definitions, to be impartial, to show no favoritism. To be unwavering. It literally means without separation or discrimination. It means to be indistinguishable. And I, I just love that picture. You know, Warren Worsby, this is um, what he said. He said, the word suggests singleness of mind and is the opposite of wavering. Not a divided heart. Not a confused, like, well, I'm not sure. Should I do this? It's There's like a, a singleness. Like, I know what God wants me to do, and I'm going to keep on doing it. And I thought, again, tonight for us as couples, how does that apply? And what an awesome place for a couple to be in where we are experiencing a singleness of mind, where we are united hearts that, you know, literally the two become one, not just in the flesh, not just in a tangible way, but spiritually speaking, the way, the way we think when our hearts and our minds are fixed on Jesus, we can be united in in body, in spirit, and in emotion. And that's what the two becoming one really looks like. And then not just for a day at a wedding ceremony or when we say our vows, but then we stay that way. We continue on that way. We carry on and keep on going that way. And yet how often the enemy or the world, Hollywood, sadly even sometimes our family or our friends, try to cause separation or division to that unity that God has created and desired in our marriages, how the world and the enemy tries to influence us and create this bias in our hearts that w- wants to stir up something that we want to come against our spouse. You know, again, as women, the world is trying to tell us, just watch a, well, I'm not going to encourage you to watch TV, but what if you did watch one of those TV sitcoms, watch how they depict marriage, how they depict the wife is the smart, you know, achieving one, and You know, the husband is kind of like, oh, wow, he's not really good enough for you. Why just settle for that? You deserve better. Kind of like our marriage. Yeah, you don't have to take that. (laughs) No. You know, kind of that take charge, I am woman attitude. And while there's nothing wrong with being a strong woman and being successful out in the world, God has a different way. And we have to check our heart because those attitudes can creep in. And pretty soon, we kind of have this condescending attitude of I am better and Wow, what about you? And that's kind of what the enemy wants us, more the enemy wants us to be, and yet not so in the Lord. James 2 says, and verse 1 says this Dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? And in our marriages, when we're listening to our flesh or the world, when we're resting upon that wisdom that comes from me, it's and that's lousy wisdom, then I am going to favor me over thee. I'm going to be more partial to me, my attitudes, my decisions, my thoughts, my opinions, my choices, rather than allowing us to be the two becoming one, and I allow my spouse to weigh in on things and to ultimately be the priest and the leader of our home. Staying close to Jesus, when I walk in his wisdom, that's the safeguard that I need to guard my heart, to make sure that my heart stays pure, to protect me from the kind of sin and temptation that this world and the enemy wants to throw my well, to protect me even for myself, for my own understanding. When I lean to my own understanding, I'm going to be, get misled. So what is partiality, and how does that play into this? When, when you think about it, favoritism, you know, favoring me, I'm the most important one here. My opinion is what counts. You know, that's, that's what partiality is about. One other definition was one-sidedness. And that's really what prejudice is all about. One-sidedness. We're the best. I'm the best. You're lower than me. I'm more important. What I say goes. That's what one-sidedness looks like. It's biased in favor of one person or one group or one side. And when, you know, we're the one in charge, then that's usually our side. It's to be parted. It's to be divided. Again, you know, as Pat pointed out, take a look around outside of our culture. And what do you see? You see a lot of voices demanding to be heard without much tolerance to the opinion of anyone else's but their own. Thinking more highly of ourselves and our opinions than we ought to be. And then condemning or putting down anyone else who would dare to disagree. Remember what the verses said earlier in James of chapter 3, verse 16. Remember what it said? For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. Take a look around outside. Watch Fox News or CNN or whichever channel you want to flip on for 10 minutes. Where envy and self-seeking exist, you can guarantee you're going to see confusion in every evil thing. And, you know, in our relationships, when one of us is thinking mostly of ourselves and our opinion, we become one-sided. We become disagreeable. We become unwilling to listen. As women, we become angry. We can become hostile. We become divisive. We um, we get confused. Why is this like this? Maybe we shouldn't have even got married. You know, and you know how often you've heard people say that? I don't even think we ever loved each other. You know, because that's the kind of confusion that the enemy loves to stir in our minds, to cause division, every evil thing. We become stubborn and condescending. That's what happens when we allow partiality, when we allow that one-sidedness to be residing in our hearts instead of the wisdom of the Lord. You know, as Pat pointed out, partiality isn't something new. The Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun. That's in Ecclesiastics. And, you know, I just was thinking, because the words pride and prejudice kept coming up as I was reading things, and I thought, you know, pride and prejudice have been along, around a lot longer than the novel by Jane Austen. It's been around since the beginning of time. In fact, even before the world began, Satan was partial to himself. He preferred his own glory. In Ezekiel 28, it says that Lucifer was perfect in his ways when he was created until iniquity was found in him. In verse 17 of that chapter, it says that his heart was filled with pride because of all of his beauty, and his wisdom was corrupted by the love of his own splendor. And again... Look around at the world. Sometimes we even have to look at our own hearts because when we allow me, myself, and I to be the most important thing, it's going to corrupt my wisdom and it's not going to be wisdom from above any longer. Remember in Isaiah 14, this is the kind of things that uh, Lucifer said, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will be like the Most High. Again, how does that apply to our marriage as women and as wives? When we start having these attitudes of, I'm the one in charge here. I don't have to listen to him. It's going to be my way. Then pretty soon we're just like Satan saying, I will be like the most high. Partiality and prejudice, when you boil it all down to the bottom line problem, it's pride. It's the sin of pride in my heart. Thinking too highly of me and less highly of anybody else. Pride is something that God says he hates in the Proverbs chapter 6. And you know, Satan didn't quit. He used pride to deceive Adam and Eve. Eve and um, Adam had the first and the most perfect marriage. If there ever was a perfect marriage, that would have been it. And yet, what did Satan do? He used pride to tempt them, to make them feel like they were missing out on something. They got their eyes off the Lord and the perfection that he provided, and they started looking for something better. And what was the result? Well, Genesis chapter 3 tells us, it says, God said, this is the curse that's going to happen because of the sin. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, that word enmity means Hostility. It says, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. You will, de- you will desire to control your husband, but he shall rule over you. So here you go. Here's the recipe for partiality. She wants control, but he gets to rule, and then there's hostility in the middle. You know, it's like that's just a problem marriage all around. And again... You talk to people who are struggling in their marriage, and usually those are kind of the categories that you find the sins happening with hostility right there in the middle, trying to stick it all together, and that's part of the curse of sin. And, you know, what is in our hearts if we aren't being controlled by Jesus? When we want to be the one in control... The thing that's in my heart is pride, and there's going to be nothing good there. As the the verse said, there will be confusion and every evil thing. And that's going to be a recipe for problems in any marriage because we're not choosing to walk in godly wisdom. David Guzik said this, God's wisdom is without partiality and without judging. And this is how he described judging. A curious inquiry into the faults of others to find matter for strong disapproval or harsh criticism. And I just thought, again, for us as wives, ouch, we need to be careful of that. A curious inquiry into the faults of others. How often am I looking to see, well, why did he say it like that? Well, why is he doing that? Well, how come this, and why, why, why? And I'm always inquiring about his faults. He always does that, he never does this. And yet, that is the beginning of partiality because it's sort of like that one-sidedness because it makes me the one-up. I'm busy looking at all his faults and failures rather than just allowing the Lord to deal with mine. And you know what? I just want to tell you, when you look to somebody else to find their faults, you're going to find them. If you study someone long enough, you're going to see the ways that they fail. That's just a reality. But the, true, the same is true of you. And so sometimes we need to flip that around and just be looking at ourselves. And we don't want to be that kind of wife that is without partiality and busy judging and finding fault with others. Do I want to look and always be finding fault with my spouse? Am I busy about finding reasons for disapproval of the things that he says or does? You know, remember what Matthew said in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, or for us wives, why am I looking at the speck in my husband's eye, but I do not consider the plank in my own? We need to be careful because that's what partiality looks like. Busy and easy judging other people, pointing out everybody else's faults, and not ever bothering to look in my own heart and see what's going on, what's wrong with me. And a lot of times what I find when I'm busy doing things like that In reality, my pride is actually justifying myself. Something that's really not right in my heart that the Holy Spirit's maybe trying to point out to me, but I justify it by pointing out what, well, yeah, but he said this and he did that. So my sin's okay. And the bottom line, it's just pride. Finding fault with other people, putting down other people to make myself feel better about myself. It's just pride. And you know what the bottom line is? There's no way I can know my husband's heart, anyways. I can't even know my own heart. Only the Lord knows our hearts. First Timothy five twenty one says this: Observe these things without preferring one before another. Do nothing by partiality. So my job is to prefer my spouse, to to lift him up, to encourage him, not be busy pointing out and making a list and a record of everything that he does wrong. Matthew Henry said this in his commentary. The original word of without partiality signifies to be without suspicion or free from judging, making no undue surmises nor differences in our conduct towards one person more than another. Think about that. You know, if I get suspicious of, well, that's his fault, you know, or why did he do that? Or I need to find out why he's always whatever, you know, then I'm judging and I'm spending all this time trying to figure out something And it does change my conduct and my behavior, because pretty soon then I have a little bit of an attitude going on towards him. And he might not have any clue at all, and it all might just be in my mind. And sometimes as women, we do that. We get a little bee in our bonnet, and we kind of just let it fester in our heart or in our mind, and we mull it over and over and over. And pretty soon we have an attitude going on, which our poor husbands cannot possibly figure out, because we didn't even know why we have it. And yet, that's what judgment does. That's what being suspicious and... Now, again, if there's sin, you know what? Trust God. He's going to deal with it. It's not our job to be the private eyes to figure out everything that our husband might be doing wrong. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And that can lead to this whole partiality thing of judging you and condescending our spouse. You know, think about it. Have you ever misjudged a person? I know that I have. Think about how, it, how the thing goes down. You, you think something wrong about a person, and then pretty soon you kind of treat them a little differently because, well, they did this, or I'm pretty sure they said that, or they did this. And you're unkind. You, you, you treat them with less respect than they deserve. And it's all based on a suspicion that might be completely false in my heart. That's, yeah, that's flesh. That's not what God would have us to be. We don't want to be wives that misjudge our husbands, We don't want to be wives that are overly suspicious or critical or harsh because we want to be judged with the same judgment that we're extending to other people. Remember, we learned that earlier in James. So we want to be careful. We want to walk in godly wisdom, which should be walking without partiality. In one other place, there's one last thing I really liked. It said that this without partiality means it literally was worded without wrangling. So I wanted to look that up. What does that mean, without wrangling? And this is what it means. Without engaging in an angry, noisy, or prolonged dispute or quarrel. Yikes. I hope that's none of us here in this room, ladies, but think about that. When my heart is partial, when I have a little attitude because I'm better and you're not and you're wrong, what usually comes out in the way we interact with one another Angry, noisy, prolonged disputes and quarrels. We can't just talk about something because right away I escalate to this, you know, death con five or whatever it is when it's really, you know, like, and I'm angry and I'm saying harsh and grumpy things. And you know what? I want to choose to walk in godly wisdom. I want to think of my husband in the best light and be respectful of him. And I think you would all agree that most of our hus- most of the husbands in here would agree They would really appreciate us to be wives that are without wrangling. They don't want to hear those noisy, prolonged disputes and quarrels. They want to, if there is an issue, we deal with it God's way and in God's wisdom. You know what, again, what an awesome place for us to be as couples, to have that singleness of mind, to have hearts that are united in Jesus and not separate, and one's better and one's worse. And think about what an example we can be to the world around us. We live in a very hurting, desperate world out there, Take a look. It's dark. It's dreary. People are looking for any glimmer of hope. And what an opportunity for us as men and women, as couples in Christ, to be an example, to be ambassadors, to be a light to this dark world of what it truly looks like for the two to become one and then stay like that in Jesus. Philippians 2 says this, Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving each other, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus has for you.
0: Amen. 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 Without partiality, so what does this look like for us guys tonight in marriage? Again, um, I, I liked the words that I found that kind of the other definitions, unwavering, not to be divided, without inconsistency, without uncertainty, not to doubt. And yet each one of these, I believe, have to do with our faith in Jesus Christ, that we would not be unwavering in our commitment to him, that we would not be divided in our commitment, we'd not be inconsistent uh, we'd not be uncertainty that wouldn't be allowed there, that we would not be in doubt in, in our commitment to Jesus Christ. And yet, uh, th- that's a commitment that we've made to Jesus. And, and Paul tells us, us men, that that same commitment to Jesus should be made to our wives as well, and that we would make those with our wives in the vows. We said those in, in our vows that we made. And yet, are we unwavering in our vows? Are we divided in our vows? Is there inconsistency? Is there favoritism? Is there uncertainty? Is there doubt in your marriage vows? Uh, None of these things should be there. And if they are, it's going to make things very unhealthy within the marriage. And and if we're there in this unhealthy place, we're not standing on the rock, but we're on the sand and the sand will be dissipated. We're We're not standing on that rock. Are we unwavering? And again, I just, when I was simple-minded, so I was thinking unwavering. Well, this is waving. Unwavering would mean like this. But when it's like this, what's going on? It's like all over the map. It's all over the place. And sometimes we can be all over the place. I'm in, I'm out, I love, I hate. You know, all of these other things is what can be going on within our hearts and our lives. And God doesn't want us all over the map. God wants us still... He wants us immovable in our hearts uh, in in the marriage. The Bible says that Abraham did not waver in his heart through unbelief, but he believed the promise of God that God was able to perform. uh, God was able to do the impossible. And what was that? Well, Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90. God promised him a child. He believed that they could actually perform the act, and that through the act performed that God would bring forth a child. And he wasn't. Unwavering, but he, he was looking to God and saying, no, I'm believing that God is able uh, to do this. I, again, men, let's hold fast, not only the confession of our faith without wavering, but also the confession of your vows to your wife without wavering, to love, to honor, to cherish all the days of your life. Uh, like the apostle Paul says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, I may finish the race with joy. Men, we need to be unwavering within our marriages. The next little thing that I looked at was not divided. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they be agreement? If you're divided, you're opening yourself up for the enemy to come in and and divide and conquer because that's what the enemy does. He comes in, he wants to put separation between you and your wife, and he will use whatever he can. He'll use money he'll use politics he'll use toothpaste he'll use sex he even uses the kids to get into bring about that dividing and conquering so that if if he can get that separation we're much easier to be destroyed the marriage is much easier to be picked off and destroyed and yet we are called by God not to give the devil a foothold again remember Jesus said this it says, he called the people to himself and he said to them in a parable, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. If Satan uh, is, is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one enters a strong man's house to plunder his goods until he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house again. Uh, If we are divided, our house is not going to stand and the enemy is going to come in. I mean, again, I remember, you know, with the kids, they used to always try to get us going against each other, you know, or other things that would go on to be those little kind of things that bring about that separation. And we can't allow that to be a part of our marriage. Again, Ecclesiastes says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Some of you guys might have even had this read at your wedding. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him as who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up again. Again, if two lie down together, will they keep warm? But They, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And then it says this, a threefold cord is not easily broken. Again, men, I don't allow the enemy to turn your helpmate into the enemy, stand together with her within your marriage. Do not be divided. Do not be divided. Inconsistent in your marriage. I mean, again, we did a lot of things with our bride while we were dating that I guarantee our wives wish we were still doing today. And what I mean is that I'm hoping that we're doing those things our wife desires to be part of our marriage. Rather than we're being consistent in things that they wish weren't a part of our marriage. When we were dated, we wanted them to like us. the words that we said, our words were, you know, with grace, seasoned with salt, wanting them, you know, making them want more of us and want to spend more time with us and want to talk, 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 talk to us. And yet again, how excited she was, uh, how excited we were to talk with her and she was excited back and we would tell her how beautiful she was. And, and then we get married and those words just don't come out of our mouths anymore. Words that used to warm her heart, now it's kind of like sub-zero and she's a little on the cold side or, or when she hears those words, it's something like that. But again, men, we're commanded by God, commanded by the Lord to love our wives and it was not just while we were dating or until we got married, but as long as we both shall live or till death do us part. Is there a consistency in our actions and behavior towards our wife that caused her to want to be close to us just like it was when we were dating. Uncertainty, that was another one I looked at within our marriage. I have to laugh a little bit about this because we were watching a movie the other day and the preacher said, and do you take so-and-so to be your wife? And the guy just looked at her and he would not respond. And then Mary laughed and reminded me, Pat, remember when that happened, when you were performing a wedding one time? One time I'm standing there and I'm doing this wedding and I get to that part and I said, Do you take her to be your your, your wife? And he would not answer me. And I'm like, hmm, very awkward moment, you know, when something like that happens. I finally said, so We're out on this bluff, and you know, the families are all standing there. And and I knew everyone and the families, like both of them, you know, they they both had spouses who passed away. And, I knew the girls and stuff. But I finally said, listen, you guys go walk and talk. Come back and let me know if you want to get married. If you want to get married, we'll marry you. But if you don't want to, I don't want to force you. And so they went off walking and they come back. Anyways, listen, I have to tell you, they're actually doing really good, you know. (laughs) Not something you would expect. You know, again, he had, um, because his wife had passed away, both their, their spouses had passed away, but he felt like by marrying her, his girls were thinking that he was betraying his ex-wife or his wife that passed away and stuff. So, and the girls, they were all happy, but everyone was actually happy about it and stuff. He was just mind games. But uh, yeah, very awkward.
1: Yeah, very uncertain.
0: Yeah, (laughs) very uncertain and stuff. So, but again, like guys, I don't know about you, but I can tell you most wives don't respond well to uncertainty, especially when it has to do with her relationship with you and the marriage, You can never remind her enough of how certain you are about being with her, together with her, how much you love her. Remind her of it often, like taking your daily vitamins every day, every morning. Remind her how thankful you are for her. And again, um, just like our relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't ever wonder one day that Jesus will stop loving me and just send me to hell because that's what I deserve. I don't ever worry about that. Because God, the Bible says, demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us. And because of that, uncertainty should not be a part of that relationship. And in a sense, men, when we demonstrate our love for our our wives, uncertainty is not gonna be a part of that relationship. And then lastly, no doubts within your marriage. Again, James tells us in chapter 1 that if there's doubts, you will be like the wave of the ocean which is tossed about by the wind. And You know, I want to read this little story from Matthew 14. It's the story of Jesus going out on the, or the disciples going on a boat. But it says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And while he sent the multitudes away, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray Now when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, being tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And yet in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And then Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him and said to him, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And again, in this story, we kind of see how and why things happen that we might fall into that trap of doubt. Because I don't know about you, but it's a trap the enemy is constantly setting. He wants us to fall into. It first tells us that they were tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Oftentimes, the external circumstances that are going on around us is what causes us to doubt. We see these external circumstances going on and see all this stuff around and it begins to cause fear and and doubt within our hearts and our lives. And yet, you know, um, for them, what happened next? They had these external things going on. And because of that, there was fear in their hearts and fear more so is the internal circumstances of the things that are going on. I, I can look at, hey, it's a ghost or, or they, they played the what if game. I don't know if you guys are good at that. I'm really good at that. It's like, well, what if Well, what if I get fired from Calvary South Bay or what if, you know, this COVID thing? What if I get COVID? Listen, I know that somebody on staff is going to come down with COVID at some time but I pray it's not me. I don't want to be the first one to come down with COVID because I'm going to be looked at as like, you know, it's like you got the plague or something. And I don't want to lose my job, you know, because I come down with COVID. No. But, but, you know, you play that what if game. We play that all the time. You know, what if cancer? What if this? What if that? And, and, and when we go there, it's never healthy for us. Never healthy. But like with Peter, when our eyes are on Jesus, he enables us to do the impossible. Peter's eyes were on Jesus, Lord command me to come out. He was first looking at Jesus and he walked on the water. He did the impossible. Again, I don't know about you, but maybe you need a miracle in your marriage and the relationship, or you know somebody that needs a miracle. Hey, when our eyes are on him, He enables us to do the impossible. That's what we want. We can rise above the wind, rise above the waves, rise above the storms of life, but when we take our eyes off of Jesus, man, that's when the enemy brings about that doubt, and that's when we sink. Guys, let's not be unwavering in our relationship with Jesus as well as our relationship with our wives. Let's not be divided but be united, standing together so we can withstand all the things the enemy throws our way. Let's, have, let's not have inconsistency in our walk with Jesus as well as within our marriage. And let's have certainty as part of our marriage. We are in this for the long haul, and let's not doubt, but have our eyes on Jesus and allow him to cause us to do the impossible. Amen? Amen. Father, we do thank you again. For your word, the things written here. And thank you, Lord, for such a time as this. You brought us here to this place in scripture. I know for me, Lord, I was so excited just in studying this. um, Of the things that you wanted to speak to my heart, that you wanted to teach me, that you wanted to minister to me, Lord. And I pray and ask, God, as we look to you, would you continue to lead, to guide, and to direct us, Lord. Help us to be men and women who are without partiality that we would not make decisions based upon external things, but we would make decisions based upon you, your love, your goodness, your grace for each and every one of us. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus name, amen. You know, guys, one last thing and I'm sorry because I said I'd come back to that and I didn't. The bike, The bike. yes, Mary reminded me, the bike. What about the bike? Mm -hmm.
1: The bike story.
0: The bike story. You know, it's not about the color of a man's skin, the house they drive, the house they live in, the car they drive, the bike they ride. I meet with people throughout the week sometimes, and I've been meeting with a guy very regularly, and we get together and we sit and we go through scripture, and we've been meeting at a park. And uh, so this last week, um, I was on my way to go meet with him, and I drive in, and then I get there, and somebody is on our bench. This is the bench I always go to, and somebody's on my bench. My cheese has been moved. This isn't right. So I have to go down to the next bench, and as I go down there, there's like a motorhome and a couple cars right out in front of this other bench, but nobody's on the bench, so I drive down there. It was the next one in line, and I walk out, and I'm sitting on the bench. As I'm sitting out there behind me in the motorhome, i I'm just hearing this commotion. Some lady comes out and she's, you know, blankety-blank this and blankety-blank that going off. And I'm thinking, oh, this isn't going to be good. We're about to have a little prayer meeting and study the word. And we got this going on right behind us and stuff. But then she kind of calmed down. The guy shows up. And as we're sitting there, we're kind of talking and talking about, you know, our stuff and, and having a great time with the Lord. But as we're sitting there, you know, there's a lot of people out today. I don't know if you know this or not. I've been going to the park a lot and sitting there. And there's a lot of people out there that are riding their bikes, a lot of families doing this. And there was this one family coming by, and this, you know, it's the husband, the wife, and the kids. And I've got these cool bikes and everything. And they're riding by, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what a cool family. This is so great. This is amazing. And they go riding by. And I'm, like, thinking, that's great. And next thing, I see these two guys come riding up who live like, who look like they're living in the park. And they go to the motor home behind me and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, Lord, I know what's going on behind me. There's a drug deal going on behind me because these guys look like total tweakers and all this other stuff. And yet, as we're sitting there, listen, listen, seriously, because I've been studying this. God speaks to my heart and he says, Pat, why are you calling something unclean that maybe I want to cleanse And God spoke to me, ministered to me, says, Pat, as long as that is within your heart, I can never use you to minister to them. And I mean, right then, right there, busted on the spot. I said, Lord, you know what? You're right. I I don't want to have prejudice. I don't want to have things within my heart, judgment, the things that we're talking about, because I want to I want you to use me in their lives, you know. We get done. I get up as I'm leaving. And I go, okay, I'm, Lord, I'm going to go by and just kind of try to say hi and stuff like that. And I walk up. But, you know, tweakers, they don't want you around them. You know, they're kind of like, and I say, hey, guys, you know, just letting you know. Hey, how you guys doing everything? And they're both looking at me like, okay, who are you? You and Ark. What's going on? You know what's up? Uh, anyways, I made an effort. Share the love of Jesus with them. But, again, guys, listen, without partiality, that's what the Lord wants. And the reason he wants is is because he wants to use us. In other people's hearts and lives. That's what he wants. So let's live our lives without partiality. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, there's the bike story. Anyways, <laughs> so we're going to plan on meeting next week. If something happens, you'll find out about it online. Um, if we're not able to meet, uh, I'm praying that we will and even praying we'll be singing our hearts out, but uh, we'll wait and see what happens next week, okay? God bless you guys. Thanks for coming out.